0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning. It's uh, so great to see you all here today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Greg. I'm a lead pastor here at The Gate, and um We're gonna be continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians this morning, which we've titled United in Christ. And and we've been learning all about God's desire for the church, for the body of Christ to be united together for his glorious purpose. And we are a part of that. And um, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been learning all about how arrogance and worldly wisdom and the rise of individualism and autonomy had become objects of division among the church in Corinth. And um, we can relate to that in in our society today and in our churches today, right? Um, And so we've learned all about that. But today, we're going to get more specific. We're going to begin exploring how those ideologies also began to give rise to outright tolerance and acceptance of sinful conduct among them. Uh, which was causing further division against one another, but more importantly, uh, against God's will for them. On that end, I'm going to warn you that uh, some of the content in this passage is mature in nature. I don't see any kids that remained upstairs, so that's good. Um, but I uh, just wanted to you know, warn you in advance of that. Um, I also pray on that end that we would have humble hearts, open minds, and ears to hear and understand what this passage is speaking to us, uh, since some of the subject matter will be potentially controversial uh, and very convicting. Uh, So just as it was back in the first century when it was written. And on that end, if you do feel potentially offended or potentially convicted, um, I would love to talk to you about that. Don't go running off in in anger and never coming back, please. Um, I would love to talk to you about that and sit down with you and, and pray with you and discuss whatever uh, you need more clarification on or whatever, right? Um, that's, that's what we as pastors are here for. Um, so I uh, just wanted to open that invitation to you. So on that end, let's open our Bibles to the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God, First Corinthians 5. We're going to be starting, and we're going to read from verses uh, 1 to 12, and then we're going to skip over to uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and read from 9 to 20. So it's a very long passage that we're reading this morning. It's all related together, so you can't really separate anything. Um, so let's read that together. The Word of God. 1 Corinthians 5 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man As his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that. His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Let's skip to chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. About 10 years ago, just after I first became a lead pastor here at the gate, I started to get this physical condition where the top layer of, of, of skin on my fingertips and my palms would just start to peel off. My wife and I called it peely skin. And yeah, it was gross. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, it's disgusting. Um, My hands looked like that of a leper from the Bible or something, you know. I tried everything, creams, vitamins, supplements. I went to the doctor where I found out that the condition had a name, exfoliative keratolysis. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, But uh, that's also where I found out that this flesh problem didn't really have a proven treatment or or cure. Uh, So I was stuck with it, I guess. And, and while it usually wasn't painful or anything, it was certainly debilitating uh, in many ways. It was also really embarrassing, uh, especially when I had to shake someone's hand or whatever. And as a new pastor, I had to do a lot of that, shaking people's hands. Great. Um, I suspect that it might have been like a magnesium deficiency or something, but like, again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. Uh, either way, thankfully, by the grace of God, after about four to five months of, of having this, this condition, it just began to go away on its own and, and uh, the flesh on my hands is restored, uh, as you can see. It's not peeling. And basically what I'm saying is I had a flesh problem. And, and, and from my end, I can only give credit to Jesus for healing me of it and setting me free from it. So all glory goes to him. Um, and as we read in our passage this morning, the church in Corinth also had a flesh problem which they needed to be rehabilitated and liberated from as well. Though their kind of flesh problem wasn't a medical issue like mine was. It was a spiritual and moral one. For when the Bible uses the word flesh, it can sometimes refer to our physical bodies, and sometimes it even refers to our nationality or ethnicity, depending on the context, but often... And usually it's referencing what uh, theologian or Pastor John Mark Homer defines as our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general, as well as our instincts for survival, domination, and the need for control. A sinful appetite in all of us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. After all, each of us is more than just a body. We are also a soul. Ephesians 2 calls this gratifying the desires of the flesh. Romans 7 refers to the flesh as giving into our sinful passions. Peter in his letters defines it as corrupt desire. The late scholar Eugene Peterson defined this use of the word flesh as the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. And so the church in Corinth had given themselves over to that sinful appetite in many ways, mostly in the form of sexual immorality, practicing prostitution, maybe as worship, adulterous affairs, an extramarital and premarital sex, along with drunkenness, idolatry, reviling, and greed, which he'll address elsewhere. And they were also even going to levels that the highly sexualized and immoral culture that that was obviously influencing them would have even been abhorred by, right? I mean, I mean, the pagan Corinthians often had monthly orgies with their work union buddies, and many of them even worshipped their goddess Aphrodite in their local temple by having sex with prostitutes. And yet even they would have been disgusted by what was going on in the Christian church there. Specifically speaking, one member of that church was involved in an incestual relationship with probably his stepmom, because it says his father's wife. Uh, but this was something specifically divine, defined as sin in rabbinical law, which you can find in Leviticus 18. And it was also something which was illegal, and, and again, even viewed by their secular Greco-Roman society as morally going way too far. right? But yet, this was a relationship which was not only being tolerated among the believers in the church, but was also seemingly arrogantly being used as a justification to to boast in themselves and and their supposed freedom and openness. And maybe this sounds familiar to you. With the rise of, of moral liberalism and sexual norms in our own culture, it's not hard to find many culturally influenced churches today who now boast in their tolerance of sexual immorality within their church community like it's a badge of honor And love. But Paul, the Apostle Paul here, who writes this letter, he's absolutely shocked here by this report. He's like, it's actually been reported to me. Like, he's shocked here by this report. And so he's also adamant that this flesh problem within the church, not referring to outside the church, but the one in the church, this unrepentant and habitual practice of giving into their sinful passions needed to be rooted out and destroyed. And, and to be clear, I want to make sure we're clear here, Paul's not so much concerned at this point with, with the occasional mistakes and, and, and one-off sins that we all commit from time to time, right? Which Jesus is quick to forgive us of when we repent. None of us are perfect. Jesus is quick to forgive us precisely because Jesus' death at the cross has already covered the debt for all sin, past, present, and future. His grace is always greater than any of our sins. Amen? Yeah, and... and And secondly, I want to be clear that he's also, and and he's clear about this in the passage too, he's also not speaking about the sexual immorality that we find outside of the church, in the world. And the truth is, as Christians, I think we often miss this part, maybe because of our own arrogance and self-righteousness. But Paul reminds us here, or rather makes it crystal clear, that, that sinners outside the church are not for us to judge. Furthermore, they're not for us to morally control, for that matter. Our job is to tell them about Jesus' saving grace. Our job is to model new life in the kingdom to them. Because only Jesus can change them, can change their hearts. Anyways, Paul's major concern then for the church in Corinth at this point is that there are some in the community who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, but yet they're habitually sinning without repenting. And more than that, others are actually arrogantly tolerating it or even saying it's good. So basically they've become like those described in Romans one thirty-two, which says, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, because the wages of sin is death. He says they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. That's basically what they've, they've become like in that church in Corinth. And again, we all know that it's extremely popular and, and even expected in our Western society right now, just like it was in the Greco-Roman society back then, to both applaud and habitually practice uh, sexual immorality, what we would call sexual immorality, and, and to even define one's identity by it, right? And yet, as Paul reminds us here, that's to be expected. Worldly people will act worldly, why are we so surprised? Worldly people will act worldly, right? Um, we shouldn't be surprised when unchristian people act unchristian because why wouldn't they, right? Why wouldn't they? What? Why wouldn't they chase after their base, carnal, self-seeking desires since they don't have a moral authority like God or the Bible to appeal to or free them from it? That's what they need, right? And Jesus was never surprised by it as well. He only, he only criticized the self righteous Religious people, right? And, and uh, He ate and dined with sinners and, and hung out with them. He wasn't surprised by their sin. And yet he would, he would also offer them forgiveness and grace for their sin so that they could be set free from it. He wasn't surprised by the sin of the world. But again, for those who claim to already follow after Jesus... It's not to be so. It cannot be so. But Paul, they retort, like a bunch of immature teenagers who seek autonomy and despise authority. What's the big deal, right? Why are you being such an old-fashioned legalistic killjoy, right? You never let us do anything. We're, We're we're just trying to be true to ourselves just trying to be true to ourselves. No, Paul writes, they're not. They're actually deceiving themselves, he says. For, for in Christ, it's not about following rules or the law or being legalistic. It's about the fact that this is not who they are anymore. This is not their identity anymore. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 again. Yeah, I'm going to read this one again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's, he's weird for them here, right? And then he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor reviles, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, stop, stop doing those things. And, and then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, right? So Paul writes, in, in other words, before they were rescued, before they were set free by the, by the precious grace and blood of Jesus Christ, that's, that's who they were following the course of this world. But now they're washed. Now they're called to be holy. Now they're made right in the eyes of God. They're children of light. They no longer belong in the darkness as it says in 1 Thessalonians. So same with us, right? Before, before we knew Jesus, we naturally followed the, the course of the world and we gave in to our fleshly passions. We were slaves to it, right? But, but in Christ, we've been set free from all that, filled by his spirit and made new. We're now called and set free to be image bearers of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so to continue to, to live like we were before we knew Jesus is to, is to essentially deny the grace and the new life, which he has so freely and generously offered to us. But, but, they complained to Paul, you, you just said, you just said we've been set free. Doesn't that mean that we can just do whatever we want? So, supposedly the phrase which he quotes in this passage, liberty to do all things, or all things are lawful for me, as the translation I read says, supposedly that, that might have been a popular slogan in first century Greco-Roman culture. And again, it sounds similar to what our culture might spout off today as well. It's amazing when we study the Greco-Roman culture and our culture today. It's like, there's no difference. Right? So this liberty to do all things, this could be defined as negative freedom. What we might call negative freedom. So that's freedom without constraints. And and as John Mark Comer again writes, is also what uh, Elsa, the princess from the movie Frozen, sings before she learns her lesson, right? She says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, right? So it's basically saying freedom is doing whatever I want, whatever feels good, whatever brings me pleasure. But Paul's like, no, you've got it backwards, kind of backwards. As A.W. Uh, Tozer writes, Christian liberty is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Or as William Barclay writes, he says, the great fact of the Christian faith is not that it makes a man free to sin, but that it makes a man free not to sin. This is why Paul writes, you say liberty in all things, but I say I will not be dominated by anything. Because giving into the desires of the flesh is not an expression of freedom or of life. Giving into the desires of the flesh is not an expression of freedom or of life, no matter what the hippies of the 60s or the porn industry or Tinder users try to tell us, right? Rather, Doing that is an act of just submitting ourselves again to its slavery. Second Peter 2, 18-19 says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. Right? That, that's what this stuff promises you. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Anything that has control over you is your master. Paul to the Galatians writes it like this. And Galatians 5 is all about this. So I'm just going to quote three verses pertaining pertain to this morning's passage. Galatians five says, "For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery." And verse thirteen: For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus Christ has set us free from the slavery and compulsion of seeking sinful pleasure for ourselves, precisely so that it won't destroy us, but also so that we can live for others. We can then live for others in his name so that we can be free to choose and and seek after what's good and pure and holy. In other words, it, it makes no sense for us to now abuse our freedom or presume upon Christ's grace by continuing to live as those in the world or as if, as if we, we haven't been saved. Because as Christians, we have been saved and are now called to a standard of living which represents the self-giving love of God. Our salvation, in fact, has enabled us to live that way. So this is the opposite of indulging the flesh. To live by the Spirit, to live free, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Right? so we can be freed from the, the compulsion to stay at home and, and feed ourselves and entertain ourselves and consume for ourselves and instead head over to the soup kitchen or something so we can serve, right? We're, we've been freed so we can do those things, so we can be Christ to the world. But, but the Corinthians argue again, come on, Paul, right? It's only natural. It's only natural to do what, what feels good. And they say, don't you know that the stomach was made for food and the food for the stomach? So I don't know where that line comes from, but they seem to be implying here that the same measure of thinking applies to their sexual organs as well, right? So sure, Paul says it, it might seem natural and it might even be legal. But that doesn't mean it's helpful or beneficial, So he goes through some reasons. First of all, as Genesis 2 reminds us, sex was created by God to be enjoyed and practiced within a marriage. It's meant to be a reflection of holy unity and oneness where a man and woman become one flesh. That's powerful. That's a powerful expression of unity. That's what it's meant to be. It's not simply an act of self-serving physical gratification. Right? It's designed to be a physical and spiritual expression of intimacy and lifelong commitment of self-giving love, which reflects the oneness and covenant love of the triune God with his people. How can we abuse that, right? The, the, this is why no one who practices sex outside of marriage in any form comes away from it feeling satisfied in the long term. In fact, more often than not, we know that it creates confusion, shame, brokenness, emptiness, hurt, and sometimes even disease. Unlike all other sins, Paul writes, this one affects the body and soul in a deeper way. Secondly, he reminds them and now us that that our bodies belong to Christ, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's right, that the same spirit which... The Spirit of God which raised Jesus from the grave into resurrection life is the same Spirit which dwells within us. And so how could we even think to invite a prostitute or any form of idolatry or adult, adultery into that holy union? And then third, Paul reminds them that when Jesus comes again, our physical bodies will be resurrected along with our souls. He gets more into a resurrection life later in the letter. But for now, it's important to note that our physical bodies matter to God. Again, the, the Greco-Roman culture had little care for their bodies because they, they, they thought the physical realm was evil and that the spiritual realm was good. Therefore, they had no qualms with, with indulging and abusing their bodies with food and lust. That was their culture. But as Christians, we know that our bodies are not just avatars for our soul, but part of the whole being, part of what what Christ will make new on the day he returns in glory. So morally speaking, what we do with our bodies matters. It matters deeply to God. More than that, Paul writes, we're meant to glorify God with our bodies. Elizabeth Elliot writes, we cannot give our hearts to God and keep our bodies for ourselves. You know what I can't stand? I can't stand when I hear Christians debating about how close they can get to doing something before it becomes a sin, right? How much, how, how much can I, I walk the line, right, before I go over it? That's such an immature and even legalistic way at looking at our lives as Christians. And I'll I'll admit, I used to do that. Once in a while, I still do. But it's like if a married man thinks to himself, hmm, how close can I get to this other woman before it's considered cheating? Right? That's not cool. (laughs) And that's only going to damage the relationship, right? So why would, we, why would we treat God like that? Rather, a, a mature Christian doesn't think that way. A mature Christian will ask in every scenario, will doing this thing or taking part in this action glorify God? More than that, they'll ask, how can I glorify God in this moment? Because that should be our desire. That should be our desire. That is, if we're truly saved and set free and filled by the Spirit, if not, or if we're not paying attention to that, we're going to continue to ask, How can I gratify myself? How can I consume? How can I fill my stomach? But, 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 the Corinthians complain again. It's not hurting anybody. Actually, Paul writes, it is. The other day I was watching an interview with an atheist philosopher by the name of Dr. Steven Pinker. He presented at the university and I got invited to go, but I wasn't able to. So I watched, some, I watched a couple interviews of him on YouTube. It was all about his new book that he wrote on rationality. And I liked some of what he said, you know, especially since it seemed to reject our current culture's take on post truth, which our feelings are more important than truth, or a relative truth, that truth doesn't exist. And he's like, we need to be rational, that's good. But then someone from the crowd at the interview asked him whether or not it's, it's rational to follow and, and act on our innate feelings and desires. And to that he responded, unsurprisingly. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he has crazy hair and stuff, and he's all, well, I'm smart, right? Um, Absolutely. It's rational to do whatever feels good as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. That's the new catchphrase of our culture, isn't it? We can do whatever we want, and define ourselves however we want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But side note here, what does that even mean, right? Like, by, by whose standard or definition of hurt are we going by here? And how do we know if we're hurting somebody or not? The, the questions go on and on. Honestly, it's a silly and unrational mantra, which, which makes no logical sense if actually fleshed out. But yet it's an argument that we often make to excuse our sin and to excuse our selfish actions. Well, it's not hurting anybody. And and this is the excuse that the Corinthians seem to be trying to make. But Paul reminds them, you are arrogant. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says... In other words, they're not only hurting themselves and and their own bodies and souls with their unrepentant sin and tolerance of sexual immorality, they're actually hurting the whole community of believers. A little leaven, a little yeast will affect the whole piece of bread. It's poisoning the well, so to speak. It's breaking down the unity of the spirit and the very identity of the body of Christ as the holy temple of the living God. More than that, it's also rendering them ineffective as witnesses for Christ in their community. Actually, it's it's having the opposite effect. How can they preach freedom in Christ and a new way of living if they themselves don't reflect that freedom and instead look exactly the same as the world? And how can they preach the gospel when they themselves are tolerating moral actions like incest that even the world disdains? As the pagan Corinthians viewed the church in that state, I'm sure they were like, We're good, thanks. We don't want none of that. Same with us today. As believers today, if if we look exactly the same as the world, morally speaking, why, why would the world take notice? And furthermore, if all the world ever hears about is sexual and sinful scandal after scandal especially ones that have been tolerated or tried to be hidden away, which seems to be the case these days as the news media, who loves to print articles about this, has been writing true stories about celebrity pastors having secret affairs and priests abusing children and indigenous children. And so if we're doing and tolerating these things in the church and that's all the world sees and hears, why would they listen to a word we have to say? Warren Wiersbe writes, if a Christian loves his church, he will not stand by and permit sin to weaken it and perhaps ruin its testimony. If a Christian loves his church, he will not stand by and permit sin to weaken it and perhaps ruin its testimony. So the question remains then how how do we respond to unrepentant sin in the church? And f- the first point is, is the most important. Because without this first point none of the other ones can follow. First, we should mourn over sin. Paul says in the Corinthians you're you're, you're arrogant but you should be in mourning. What he's saying is that that whether the Holy Spirit convicts us personally for unrepentant sin, or whether we see that sin revealing itself in the lives of others within the church, this should cause us to weep. We should mourn for anyone who's fallen back under the dominion which Jesus died to set us free from. We should mourn over the damage and destruction we see it causing in that person and within the church. At the same time, what we shouldn't do, this is important, what we shouldn't do is point our fingers with self-righteous indignation like morality police, instead remembering that we're also imperfect and always in need of grace ourselves, right? But neither should we swing the pendulum the other way and choose to ignore that sin or, or tolerate it just because we're afraid of offending someone by bringing it up. No, if we truly loved and, and cared about one another, and desired to see people restored and, and set free, our hearts should break for them in their sin. Like Jesus' heart breaks for ours. Like Paul's heart is breaking here for the church in Corinth. And from that place of heartbrokenness and humility, we can then address the issue, which brings us to the next step of dealing with sin. Secondly, we must confront the sinner and their sin for the purpose of restoring them. That second part's important to you, for the purpose of restoring them. Uh, Eugene Peterson again writes, Christian communities are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. None of us are perfect, right? They are rather to be places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. So this is what the Apostle Paul is modeling for us here in this passage, right? Well, really throughout his whole letter to the church in Corinth, he's in his authority as an apostle, he's confronting their sin, right? He's, he's calling it out. Again, not to condemn or because he, he thinks he's holier than thou, but because he's genuinely concerned for their salvation and their spiritual well-being, and he wants to see them restored in Christ. He writes it like this in, in Galatians 6.1. He says, Brothers, if, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So that's the goal of confronting sin, right? To restore somebody. And if we're not weeping for them, and if we're, we're pointing our finger at them, and being like, ah, you're such a sinner, that's not going to work, right? We need to have a a desire to see them uh, repent and desire to see them restored. And we need to do that in gentleness. Which brings us to the next step of dealing with sin. Third, we should repent of our sin. We should repent of our sin. This is the best part. Like, this this part is awesome. Because as Christians, we can come to Jesus with, with our sin and our brokenness and just the weight of it all and we can just simply lay it down at the foot of the cross where he's quick to forgive us. Just like he forgave the Samaritan woman at the well who was living in a sexual relationship out of wedlock. Just like he forgives the prodigal son who spent his inheritance on, on booze and prostitutes. Right? Just like, and just like he forgave the woman caught in adultery. When we come before him and when we confess our sins to him and to one another in the church, Jesus' grace covers those sins. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amazing. So no no matter what we've done or what's been done to us, Jesus took on our shame and our brokenness and our sin at the cross so we can lay them down before him and be set free, truly set free from every single chain that bound us so that we can live a spirit-filled life for his glory and for his good purpose. Which leads us to the next step. The fourth step is if necessary, we must purge ourselves of unrepentant sin and flee from it. Purge ourselves of sin and flee from it. In in the passage, Paul gives us a a picture of the Passover supper where God's people celebrate that first Passover in Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed over their houses and, and spared the eldest son of all those who had lamb's blood over their doors. And to celebrate this, one of the, the things that they would do, that Jewish people would do is, is bake unleavened bread and also ensure, before they did that, that any kind of leaven or yeast was completely removed from their houses. So they would purge their home of leaven because leaven re- represented sin. So this, this is our calling as Christians Jesus, by the power of his blood and and the Holy Spirit within us, has given us the faith and and the grace to to enable us to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us. But this mandate also applies to church discipline as well. This part is difficult, right? Um, For example, the man who was involved in that incestual relationship in the church of Corinth, again, he was like leaven to the church. He was defiling the whole loaf by remaining in his sin and refusing to humbly acknowledge it and repent. And so Paul calls for that man to be removed from the church. And he says, handed over to Satan, which probably means, it's debatable what that means, but that probably means given over to his sin and to the world, since that's what he's choosing. Not as a form of like punishment or excommunication per se, rather as, as a form of discipline, to both protect the church community, the integrity and, and spiritual uh, health of the church community, right? But mostly so that like the prodigal son, he would see the error of his ways and the works of his flesh and eventually come back to Christ and to the church. Now, Warren Weersby again writes, church discipline is not easy or popular, but it is important. If it is done properly, God can use it to convict and restore an erring believer. You know, as it says, God disciplines the ones he loves, right? He wants to lead them on the right path, get them on the right path, because he loves them. In uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about a man who returns to the church in repentance, and, and most scholars think that this is the same man. And so this discipline seems to have worked, praise God. So, you know, when I think about it today, I'm not sure that, that it would work as well today since one could just get offended, which we seem to do. We like getting offended. I'm so offended, right? And just be like, oh, I'm offended, you know? And they would just go find another church instead because there's like tons of churches, which there, which there weren't back then. There was like one church in every city, right? And so, but still, the, the point still remains. It's important that if someone is refusing to give up their sinful ways, that they be disciplined in a way that they could be eventually restored. Again, that's the goal, restoration. Furthermore, as Christians, personally, we're called to flee from sin, right? Specifically in this passage from sexual immorality, but he lists a bunch of other things too, right? We're, we're to run from it. We're, we're to remove any temptations, refuse to place ourselves in, in a position where we might have the opportunity to sin, right? This is part of the Lord's prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation. Flee from it, like keeping ourselves away from a hungry lion or bear. It's, it's no good, it's deadly, it's harmful. Don't even approach, run, right? And in fact, the best way to flee from sin, this is the best way, hands down, the best way to flee from sin is to always be running to Jesus. The best way to flee from sin is always to be running to Jesus. You won't even think about sinning if you're running to Jesus. Which brings me to my final point and to the conclusion this morning. The fifth thing we do about sin is we're to celebrate our freedom from sin. We're to celebrate our freedom from sin. 1 Corinthians 5.8, again, says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's calling the believers here to celebrate the freedom that they have in Christ from their sin by by living out their lives with sincerity and and truth, right? Later, he describes this again as glorifying God with their bodies, which means to glorify him by no longer living to according to who who we were, right? But, excuse me, but according to who we now are in him. To live gospel-centered, spirit-filled lives of humble repentance, self-giving love, and worship to God. I love how, you know, in such a heavy passage, Paul still manages to call us to celebrate, to rejoice in our freedom and and what Jesus has done for us at the cross. And this is a reflection of the call of Jesus himself, who on, on the day of his last Passover supper with his disciples, directed them to celebrate and remember the power of his death and what it accomplished for them. Right? To remember that his body was broken in place of our sinful bodies so we could be made new. And that his blood, like the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, was shed for our salvation and the forgiveness of all our sin so that we could lay down our guilt and shame before him and freely enter into his everlasting life as citizens of his kingdom, sons and daughters of God the Father.